uh, but yeah. All right. Uh, I guess we could start with like a quick introduction if you wanted to kind of introduce yourself and uh, for the people who don't know, because uh, I'm mostly based on TikTok. So I don't know if there's a large overlap. Uh, there's probably not. So I am <laughs> not tech savvy, which shocks a lot of people. So I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on probably a lot of the uh, other platforms. But so I'm Dimitri Bianco. Um, I've worked in quantitative finance now for a little more than eight years. Uh, I'm probably one of the largest quantitative finance YouTubers. And by largest, I mean there might be three or four of us at most, uh, all specializing in different areas. Um, I'm currently the head of Agora Data for risk management and research. So I actually run teams of quants there as well. Um, I've done everything from model development, model validation, uh, internal audit, and model implementation covering the entire spectrum of what we would view as a quant. So I've kind of covered all that and I've covered essentially every aspect of that from credit risk to market risk to operations into what I like to call regulatory risk, which is like PPNR and CECL and those sort of things. So that's kind of who I am. <laughs> right. It's a very high level of overview. Uh, does that include operational risk by any chance? Yes, it does. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, just because uh, that, that was one of the things I got taught at university as well through my, my quant finance masters, uh, which again, that, that like Gary put on, on your YouTube videos was a huge help for that kind of stuff and, and picking the right masters. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, operational risk is a very, I think, so I think most quant master programs have done a horrible job at teaching quantitative finance. And I've debated yeah. on talking about this more so, but it's like when I was in school, everything is buy side. So you want to end up in a hedge fund and everything is really equities and derivatives. Yeah. So we hardly ever touched bonds. And then when I start talking credit risk, people assume bonds. And I'm like, no, 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 like loans for like mortgages and auto. And then when you say something like operational risk, I'm like, there's programs teaching this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I mean, I would argue even the one I did isn't that great just because it's like a, it's a one-year master's. So it's kind of like you kind of learn a little bit about everything and just very surface level. And unless you kind of take the time outside of school to kind of dig into it, it doesn't really go anywhere. Like, I think most people ended up on like quant graduate schemes here in the UK, very few direct hires. And the ones that were direct hires were typically the people that kind of dug deeper into those concepts. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you're completely right. It is very much kind of buy side focused and also like options pricing and financial engineering stuff, but it's still very high level. Like it's not like yeah. going, getting into the weeds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's challenging, I think. And I think what I've, so I've made videos, of course, you know, on uh, how I think master's degree should be at least two years. And yet I think when a lot of people graduate and you end up in the industry, you start realizing like, oh, I wish I would have taken a class on this topic in greater depth. Because <laughs> you're right, you do cover a little bit of everything, but it's so hard to get specialized in one area. And then the more you get going in that area, you start to realize, like, like I have textbooks say on my desk that I would love to read and I'm eight years into a career and I still feel like, you know, I'm barely scratching the surface on most of these topics. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm still learning even at this point, which is kind of frustrating in a way, just because <laughs> you, you'd hope you just do the master's degree, you get a job and you're done, but it just it yeah. keeps going. Uh, even more so when you work at these places, because like half the time you kind of come out of this, these courses, at least, with, at least with me, you think you kind of know everything there is to know. And the second you get into one of these jobs and you start working with other quants, you realize how little you actually know. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a very steep yeah. learning curve. Yeah. I think there's kind of a two-pronged approach for schools. There are grad programs that grind the students to death. 
which I'm not a fan of because it really demoralizes you. And then you have programs that cover things way too quick and then you're way too confident. And then you end up in this weird bind of either position where it's like you get in the industry and if it was too quick, you're like, oh man, I have so much to learn. And then if you're in one of those programs that ground you down to be, I don't know, we had we had students that were like went home on medical leave because they were not sleeping at all just to catch up on the material. It, it, it was terrible for morale, but then they get into the industry and a lot of them realize like what they were doing is just too rigorous in one very specific area. And then you end up in the same bind again, which is now I have to learn, you know, 10 times as much stuff as I thought I knew, but I'm still kind of grappling with how do you, how do you learn all that in such a short period of time? Yeah. Like it's, it's a lot of content and, and even like, I think quant finance is also kind of, it's often like a huge umbrella term, right? Like, like we yeah. touched on earlier, there's like operational risk, there's credit risk, there's all these other things. There's the buy side, there's sell side stuff. I didn't realize until like literally a couple of weeks ago that like market making involved forecasting spreads. And apparently, I mean, I, I knew that was a, a component of it, but I didn't know that they used machine learning to do it. I thought that was way behind. Yeah. I thought, it's, I thought, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the biggest lies we keep seeing is, so I listen to all these tech experts go out there talking about, you know, oh, machine learning's changing the world and it's great and wonderful. And we're cutting edge and we're making all these advancements. And then you jump into finance and you're like, all right, they're going to be really dumb. I'm going to come in here and teach them all these skills. <laughs> and then I talk to people and they're like, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years. And I'm like, what do you mean you've been doing, you know, machine learning for 20 years? I just heard it's like new. And it's like, oh, no, they've had models and like they have whole infrastructures already built and languages are set up. And it shocked me. It really did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that that's definitely a big part of it, but also how little they actually work. Yeah. Like, that's like 80% of my job is fixing broken models because someone built like an, an overfitted neural network and now it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's, man, I had this great conversation with someone and they were talking about how brittle machine learning was. And it was like the first time I'd ever heard that term. And I'm like, what do you mean it's brittle? I was like, it's a model, right? We, I'm building, you know, like Ceremax models and they're building, I don't know, like a gradient boosting decision tree. Like it's a model, it's a model. And they're like explaining, it's like, okay, it fits so well. And that overfitting creates essentially like a brittleness to it. And then he's like, when these fail, we have to fix them. And it's like when you've got money on the line that's moving and trading or you have customers transactions relying on that, he's like, we can't wait like, you know, three months for you to come up with a solution. It's like, I got to have one tomorrow. And I was like, okay. Like, yeah, it really started clicking on like, okay, machine learning has great applications. Yeah. And then there's also that redevelopment time tends to be a lot shorter than if you can get something more robust. But then of course the question is, is are you willing to trade accuracy for the robustness? Yeah, yeah. And in my experience, it's like the when I was at a hedge fund, it was very much just do whatever works, we'll fix it later when it breaks. And then now when I'm in the asset management side, it's, it's the complete opposite. It's more like build as much as you can, make it as reliable as you can, and just never touch it in the next 10 years. Ideally. Yep. yep, that's the banking side as well. It's like, let's just do it right the first time, even though it's going to take you forever to get it done. Yeah, it, it, like, I think it took me maybe six months to implement like a, a particular alpha. So I was doing like a different factor developments for, for portfolio optimization. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the ways we kind of aggregate factors is using some sort of aggregate combined model type thing. I can't say which one, but it, we aggregate a bunch of factors into one signal, basically. And I was trying to implement this paper, which does it through ranking, like a learn to rank algorithm. Yep. And, and the documentation on it was just absolute, like it was just trash. So I, I had to build it from scratch just to understand how it worked. And yeah. What? What 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 language are you guys using? 
It's mostly Python, but uh, it, just, it depends where I am, really. <laughs> yes. So I've been thrown into the Python deep end now. Yeah. And the banks have been nice and cushy where it's like everything we do is very structured. Uh, so we use SAS for everything. So statistics-wise, like, it's a dream. I can code out models in a few weeks, and it's like, it optor like everything I need and want to know is perfect. Now I've got into Python. I'm like, all right, I just need this one simple thing. And you're like, you're online searching for hours. I'm like, I can't find a stupid package. So I find other colleagues. I'm like, all right, what are you guys using? And they're like, oh, we copied this code from over here. And then it patched into here. And I'm like, okay, well, the results don't look right. Like, it's not working correctly. And they're like, yeah, we know. It's close <laughs> enough, though. And I'm just like, <laughs> like, Python's great. It's free. But there's a lot of building, I think, that people don't realize behind the scenes on it. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, when I was at the hedge fund, that's basically what I did there. Like me and one other quant built everything from scratch, every single library, every single possible thing, every single model. Like even when we were doing basic like regressions, we built the uh, maximum likelihood optimizers from scratch and everything. Like we, we, yep. we didn't trust anything. Oh yeah, yeah. And it shocks me. Somebody was talking about um, some of the Kaggle competitions and they were saying that it was like sklearn versus, I don't know, some other package. And one of them was always winning. And like, it was the same algorithms and everything, but one was always winning. And then the other one went and like updated their algorithms. And since they updated it, now it's the one that's always winning. And I'm looking at them like, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. I'm not sure how you're like, <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. I just, I shake my, it comes back, I think to the same thing. Do you want something done quickly and it might break quickly? Or do you want something done correctly, but it might take you months and months to write out a bunch of tedious code? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's why it's such a, there's such a big demand for quant developers as well now. Like, so you'll have the researchers on one side and the developers on the other, because at least then you don't have to worry about implement, like implementing anything. Yeah, yeah. I'm stuck now doing everything under the sun. <laughs> so this has been a culture shock of getting the right tools in place, like languages and everything. And then yeah, it's like, do we have the right tools to even build? And then on the how do we implement this thing is how do we set it up to implement it correctly? And so for me, it's like I've done parts of these throughout the career, like a little bit here and a little bit there, but it's never been like a, you have to do all these tasks in one shot. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of on this topic, I was getting a couple of questions uh, for you about kind of machine learning type stuff. People were asking about uh, whether you think the future of finance and the kind of, do you think like all the money in the world is going to go into using machine learning algorithms? Do you think that's where the money is in the future? No, not at all. So I probably shock a lot of people. Um, so a lot of people view me as anti-machine learning, which I think is kind of odd. But I come at it more from a banking perspective of responsible machine learning. And I view everything as statistics. And I kind of debated this with somebody before where it's like, they'll give me a bunch of ideas and they'll say machine learning is groundbreaking. It's changing how we do everything. And I go, okay, like give me an example. And they threw something out there and it was like, I think it was like Shapley values oh. for explainability. Yeah. And I'm like, you realize that's based off of an economic theory from like the early 1900s. And I'm like, really? And I'm like, yeah, they just implemented that idea. Now implementing it into Python code and making it freely available is a nice thing to do, but it's not necessarily like this groundbreaking new piece of it. And so I think machine learning, at least in my perspective, it's just statistics. Yeah. So I mean, you look at neural networks, what is neural networks? It's layered logistic regressions. Like logistic regressions being used everywhere for hundreds of years. And really, I mean, as you have probably not hundreds of years, but if you have computer advancements, right, 
logistic regression became more feasible to implement as well as OLS regression and all that. Uh, but I think machine learning is going to be more popular, but there are areas that's really going to shine and there's areas that's really going to do miserable at. And time series forecasting, I've yet to seen really great machine learning approaches to it. Yeah. And I, I think it touches on a lot of what you kind of mentioned too at the, the models failing. It's like, I can get you one of the most accurate machine learning time series models ever, but it's going to fail extremely quickly. And then again, having all that financial engineering background of like stochastic processes and building the theory into like a model structure that's more robust. Uh, typically you'll see that it, traditional statistical methods seem to, to be working better. Um, but on the flip side of that, like fraud detection has been working with machine learning for probably 20 plus years and it blows statistics out of the water. Like there's no comparison. And so I think, I don't even have any firm I've ever met that's using traditional statistics for fraud detection. It's all being used in machine learning. So I think machine learning is the hot buzzword now, and you definitely need that on the resume to get your foot in the door. Yeah. But I think as the industry kind of develops more, uh, we'll see a lot of the machine learning roles just being kind of shoved into quant, where it's like, you used to do math and statistics, now you're doing math, statistics, and machine learning all under one umbrella. Like you're just building models or doing research. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Like uh, the kind of trend that I've seen is that it's used because of papers. <laughs> like people will most often just send me a paper being like, hey, here's a new cool fancy machine learning algorithm. Can you <laughs> see if it works? I, I, I do it. There's no code. And none of these papers have any code shared. There's no, there's, no. They, never, they never tell you how they process their data. They just show you the results. It's great. This next best thing. <laughs> You do your best to implement it, and it never works. And it's just an utter waste of time each time I do it. Uh, yeah. There are some aspects I have seen it work, which is like uh, momentum forecasting in like short-term directional moves. So not necessarily like okay. absolute values, but like predicting the sign of momentum, either upwards or downwards. That's been pretty useful. But even those break, and they often don't perform that much better than something like a lasso regression would. Mm -hmm. And even then, it's like the marginal benefit of using something more complicated where you have no idea what's going on versus using something like a lasso is just it, it, it's it's a big ask yeah i think one of the issues too i've seen is when people assume when a model fails like we just drop everything and then just build something new often it's like we're in such a hurry something breaks i'm trying to figure out how do i patch the current model and so when i tell people it makes more sense to use a simpler approach than a more complex one so the more black box ML you get, the harder it is to patch that because I don't know exactly where the model's failing. Where for me, if I have yeah, like a lasso regression, it's easy to look at the coefficients in the model and go, oh, like this one input has a huge shift. Like the market moved a lot on that. So we just need to refit the model itself and we can keep using it. Or I can look at it and go, the whole thing blew up. Like a bunch of the inputs aren't working. Yeah. We need to do a complete new model development. But I think machine learning... You know, people are like, screw, you know, simplicity. We want something really cool and accurate. And I think there's a time and a place for that. But when you're the one fixed stuck or you know, stuck fixing all these things, that's the that's not what you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's because it's it's not even like your full day job either, right? Like it's just an extra tack on. And it's just those yep. extra hours yeah. that you just don't need to do. And it's it's quite frustrating. Yeah, but and when you do that new model that no one else has built then it's like, instead of you going back to so-called fix the model, it's really you going back and saying, okay, did I really understand the paper? Was it really implemented correctly? And then you waste time doing that. And then you're like, all right, I was 100% accurate on that, but now why is that failing? And so you start, yeah, yeah, just extra work. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so I think I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about like trading and investing type stuff, just because my audience in general is very much up in that. Uh, the TikTok space is full of people who draw triangles on charts and I don't know, look at 20 indicators and that kind of stuff. Uh, what's your take on that kind of thing? Technical analysis. Okay. So this is a really interesting conversation. I had with a buddy of mine in New York City a few weeks ago and I was there. Uh, it was a fun time. We were walking around New York, like Manhattan around. We had dinner at eight. I think we walked to like midnight or one in the morning, just around Manhattan chatting about this. Um, so I, the first gut reaction is technical analysis does not work. We all know that. But then it get, leads to the question of how do you define technical analysis? Because I had the argument that it does work and it depends on the market. Right. And so I, was, so I was like, okay. I was like, well, give me the details. And I think the conclusion we came up with is for well-developed markets like equities, uh, bonds, derivative markets, we already have such a sophisticated group of people that are buying, selling, and trading. It's really hard to do something stupid and say like, you know, this is the pattern. If you have the like two, two upward runs, we're going to guarantee to have a third one. And then it's going to have the drop. And so I think when people think that's going to happen, it's like, it doesn't happen. Like you're just looking at a bunch of charts and you, you know, have a bias of trying to prove your hypothesis is correct. But interestingly, the point that was brought up for me was that um, in cryptocurrency markets, they work really well, the stupid approaches. Right. And so I was like, okay, I was like, but why? Like, why is this working? But theoretically, it shouldn't work. And he explained to me that the reason it works is because you have so many people that are excited to trade crypto that are just average people. They all run onto TikTok and onto YouTube to find that trading guru for $9.95 or whatever that's going to give you that answer. Yeah. And they give you these stupid tools, like a moving average or something. And he said, everyone's using it. So he said, the whole market decides, like, you know, we have to have that run to get that third point. And literally, it's like, it's, it's just underdeveloped market of people that don't know what they're doing. So it follows those dumb trends. But in general, no, it doesn't work. There's finance is so complicated in itself of real, like even I beat home the point of stationarity constantly, yeah. but it's implying that, you know, the past is going to continue to look like the future. And often, you know, we know from inflation and FTX blowing up recently and, you know, I don't know, presidential elections and all these things playing into it. Things are never stable and they're never predictable. And so your best to use statistics that rely on, again, assumptions, which we know are just that, an assumption. Even if we pass the test, it's still an assumption. But if you have no assumption and you're just drawing lines or doing like Bollinger Bands or moving averages, it's like you even dumb the world down to an even simplistic view that just isn't realistic. And typically when things go bad for these sorts of people, they go really, really bad. Or people that are using like statistical models and machine learning, they at least know when the model is starting to fail and they can at least close positions and get out before, you know, it melts down, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a lot of the stuff I've been doing, it has been like uh, TA related on crypto, but as well as other things, people will like share some super expensive indicator that you could buy for like $500 or something. You look at it and as, as a quant, you can tell what the signals are. You're like, oh, this is some kind of moving average. And yeah. I managed to do this with someone and I think I got blocked, but I, I figured out what the signal was. <laughs> I programmed it up and I back tested it and it had like the lowest uh, forward win rate, like insane amounts of false positives. It was just an awful, awful strategy. Then I released the code publicly. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, it's, 
it's just so I feel bad because I feel like I have a lot of subscribers on my channel. They reach out and go, Dimitri, I want to run a hedge fund and trade for myself. And it's hard explaining to them. It's like, I wish that was how the world yeah. worked. Like I really do, but I can't one teaching you financial engineering, as you know, right? You do the, you do like a one year masters or a two year masters and you get to the end of it. And you're like, I, I don't know anything. I still need to learn like a million things yeah. more. And even when you get to the point of being matured through a career, you start to realize like, I'm not the quant dev. Like I don't have time to implement models and to build models and to set up like data engineering and pipelines and, you know, data quality and data cleaning. And then you think about, you know, okay, you're gonna have to hire a few people. So then you start thinking, okay, if I hire a few people to do all this, now I have employees. So now you have to manage all these employees and then you have accounting to do because now it's a business. And then you have all these other things and it starts like spinning out of control of you realize it's just not feasible to be that one guy that's like a sole, sole proprietor quant that's so smart and is trading on their own. Yeah. But I think that continues to be like the dream. Like if I could just work for myself and make millions, like I would be so happy. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I do know someone <laughs> that got fairly close to it. Like someone, I, I don't know him directly. I was speaking to like a trader at Citadel in the, uh, like the, the prop side. He basically is a quant. And he was telling me like how one of his friends who was ex Citadel launched a crypto hedge fund launched this year it was mostly his own capital and he blew the whole thing up in eight months and now he's looking to come back to citizen and he was yeah it's yeah, he was one of the smartest people there apparently yeah and my buddy that i was talking to in new york we had this conversation he was talking about his pm he's like oh he's so smart and he's explaining he has like this long you know 20 plus year career and he's done well and i said but you realize why he's done so well and he's like well why and i said he has perfect risk management. He understands the models. He hires you guys to build models, but he understands where the limitations are, when to get in and when to get out. But he realized he needs that team. And he's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. He goes, he does, you know, talk about risk management a lot at the firm. And of course, most quants just roll their eyes like, oh, you know, <laughs> risk management. They're going to tell us we can't do something yeah. cool today. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely what I've seen as well. Like uh, a lot of PMs, I think it's kind of, Especially like when you come from the TikTok side of finance, the the kind of ideal trader is the guy that works by himself, doesn't speak to anybody, manages a giant portfolio all on his own. But in reality, those guys are talking to like, I don't know, like five or six different teams. They're keeping on top of everything. Yeah. They're up the, the earliest. They're going out the latest. Yeah. Like there's a lot of, to keep on top of. And I think the the kind of prestige of it that I had when I was a lot younger, it kind of went away very quickly. Like... Yeah, just, yeah. It, like the 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 energy you need to keep on top of that many things, that many people, that many teams, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's yeah, it it's hard now. So I'm running a team, and it's like everybody's like, okay, so you understand what's going on in the economy? What's happening with this event? What's happening with that? And I'm looking at everyone like, I don't I don't have time. Like I'm setting a team up and trying to get employees in place and do training. And then you're right, it's like. I'm really excited. I get like a, a new machine learning methodology and I've got a paper or something. I'm going down like a rabbit hole and I'm stuck in this, you know, for like a month or two, just trying to get the details worked out. And meanwhile, it's like, yeah, the markets are still moving. The firm's still operating and someone has to look up and see all these other patterns and trends going on. And it's, it is really, really hard because I think quants in general, even when you start at the bottom, you always have that passion to do more math yeah. and stats. And like you, you want to know these cool answers. And then if you make it up through like senior management roles, then it's like you're required to look at everything, which is fine. But it's really hard to be a quant and say like, 
I want every nuanced detail of why that's working. It's like it starts to fall away. Yeah. <laughs> like you lose control. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Like, so, so going back to the TA stuff, you mentioned how you think, or like the, the conversation you had made you inclined to believe that it works in crypto because of like how more people pile into it. Do you mm -hmm. think that still applies in more liquid markets outside of crypto? Or do you think it's just because the the retail aspect of crypto kind of lends itself more to that? I think it's the retail aspect. And I mean, I went to the trading show in Chicago here a few months ago. And like there was a few funds there saying they were making a killing on it, which I'm probably betting they lost a bunch of FTX now and are, you know, not so happy about that. But I think part they were saying, you know, like these investing firms should all jump in the water because there's not very many institutional traders. And I think it's more the retail side than it is the liquidity or the development side, where if you have a lot of robust retail traders, they just lack the tools and the training. I mean, one thing I think people miss is data. Like data will make or break you and firms are spending millions of dollars on data. So when you jump in there as a retail trader and you're like, you know, you got your phone out or whatever and you're so excited, you're like trading your, your Ether or your Bitcoin or whatnot. You don't realize the guy on the other end of those trades probably has like an office setup, like I typically have with multiple screens and servers. And then, you know, the company's dumping millions of dollars into all these data sources and they've always got an edge on you just because they have yeah. more money. Yeah. So, yeah, I think crypto is unique in the fact that it's retail driven and the retail has enough power in the short run, sometimes like the uh, GameStop yeah. issue. But in the long run, like these billion dollar hedge funds or million dollar hedge funds even can just kind of steamroll you in the long run so i'm definitely seeing that trend nowadays like i think a couple of years ago it was almost purely retail driven but i think since maybe 20 end of 21 onwards or sorry beginning of 21 onwards uh most of the wallets that hold like sorry most of the volume on bitcoin are from wallets to have over 100 bitcoin and i don't, I okay. don't know what that translates to in terms of retail versus institutional but just from playing it by ear from the different people I've spoken to in crypto, it does seem to be like a lot of market making activity that are, that's going on for institutions. Like there's a couple of pension funds in the States that are allocating to like crypto. And it's, 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 it's it used to be, it used to be lucrative <laughs> before the rate hike cycle started. Cause then you had like yields in like double digits. Yeah. From relatively stable protocols where, you know, you're earning a percentage of fees on transactions that made sense. Now you can earn like what four and a half percent on a three month T bill. It doesn't make sense <laughs> anymore. I think those yields and the crypto market crashed, so the value of those coins are a lot less. So yeah, it's. I think it's crypto is going to develop, but I think it's kind of you're pointing out like any price that's inefficient, which has been all the cryptos in the last how many years. As more and more intelligent investors get involved in this, they will slowly drive all the profit out of it. So it'll finally be efficient, which is nice because maybe that'll add more stability to the pricing. But then at the same time, yeah, there's not a lot for, you know, people looking to to make wealth doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is a really interesting space, though. Like there's some, like everything that happened with FTX, that, that was like, I spoke to some of those people that were, that were like quite high up fairly recently because uh, I was vetting out a bunch of different potential counterparties. And FTX was one of them. And I remember one of the biggest issues we had was that they were very kind of standoffish when we started asking them questions about their books. Uh, but <laughs> most crypto firms are like that. So we didn't really, at the time, we didn't really think of it as that big of a deal. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And the kind of obvious answer to, like, to, to our due diligence is just that, well, if they're, if they're going to be opaque about it, we're just not going to pick them. And so we, we just moved right. on. <laughs> and then like a few months later, this happened. And yeah, I think I think that was a really good decision just because having to explain to people in, tra- in traditional finance what's happening with FTX and the fact that we spoke to them and that we didn't pick them has been a good option just because it gets that ball rolling, hopefully. But yeah, it's 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 funny to see. Yeah, it's... It's so working on the risk management side has been interesting because one of the things I think when you come out of school, often you think like, okay, I'm going to build models. And really my goal as a manager is to have my employees come in and just build models. Like that's what you're paid to do. But as you get going through working in large institutions, you start to realize there's all these teams of people I never knew existed. And it comes down to, I think like that trader dream or that quant dream of like, I'm just going to be, you know, locked in this bubble doing my own thing. But you start, like, for example, banks have what we call corporate, or they have different governance teams. You have model development governance, and you have model validation governance and internal audit. Some firms have their own governance on there. But this whole idea of corporate governance, where there's processes and procedures and everybody has to follow these, in a way, I would say corporations, big institutions are actually more decentralized than um, crypto is. Because crypto, like FTX failed because they were so intertwined and so tightly connected that it's like the information couldn't get out. When you have this large firm though, I mean, most banks have over 10,000 plus employees. You have to have systems and processes in place. And there's something that we always refer to as a single dependency, where we can't have single dependency. You have to have someone tied into that that knows it. And I mean, especially like at a hedge fund, I mean, you can't imagine having like your top quant who's super bright and builds these excellent models. And then he ups and leaves. And then all of a sudden now, like you just don't have that source of that information anymore. And I've seen that happen even at big institutions where there was an HR scandal that went on and so an individual got let go. But when he left, there was a team of four people that spent three months on it and they couldn't figure it out. And so I think crypto is one of those things. It's just, it's so underdeveloped by so many individuals who lack corporate structure and understanding of how businesses are actually built. There's too, maybe too too many quants, <laughs> too too many people like myself that are too excited about it, um, but they just often don't have all those you know non-quanty experiences of doing the the boring, tedious internal audit jobs or the governance or those kind of things. Yeah, like what what happened with FTX was definitely like it, it's something that you wouldn't think would be conceivable in traditional finance, like using client funds to pay off loans or. <laughs> Or like the the fact that they were so insolvent and they were pushing up their like like pushing up the value of their books by buying their own tokens, it was like surely someone must have thought that was going to be a bad idea, right? Yeah, and again, it's, it comes back to that. Like, how many people were involved in it, and why didn't somebody raise a flag and say like, this seems so sketchy, or this like, there's no way we can just buy our own token and just generate free capital, like. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, I'm I'm fairly against DeFi in the sense I think too many people think money's just made up by trust. So like right. if you if you say, Dimitri, I give you a million dollars, like in my head, I'm like, all right, I trust you. Like I don't need to see the money. I don't need any actual proof or evidence. I'm a millionaire overnight. Yeah. And I think this is unfortunately what's going on with DeFi is I'm starting to make more videos again back on economics because I think people have missed the point of like value is generated from labor and capital. Yeah. That's the only way it comes from. I mean, you, the government, the United States can keep printing money, but inflation hits and it becomes worth nothing. So even the big, powerful U.S. can you know, try to do it, but they can't cheat the system. But at the end of the day, you still have to work for your money. You have to provide a good or a service of some sorts 
to get value. And unfortunately, I think blockchain is like, hey, look, we can transfer a digital dollar amount from the left side to the right side. And it's transparent. And yet, magically, we didn't catch any of the FTX issues. So I don't know. I just think there's a a big falling that's going to come with DeFi. So we'll see kind of how that turns out in the long run. But I just can't imagine in the long run it will. I don't think it'll be there. I just don't think it's going to be a viable option. Yeah, like as a decentralized money market, there's a lot of aspects to it that need to be fixed. But I, it is kind of interesting how most volume that is on being transacted in crypto is on a decentralized platform. It's through Uniswap at the moment. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why that is. I think it's probably like the adverse nature of, of like maybe the retail side of not wanting to transact through, you know, KYC, AML type companies. Because through yep. these guys, you just need a MetaMask wallet. You plug in, you do your transaction, you're out and you self-custody. But yeah, like I, I completely agree. Like I think especially the tokens that are built off of this stuff that isn't, it's only backed by the transaction costs. Those things are going to tank if if volume ever dips below a certain level, right? Like, yeah, it's, well, yeah. I mean, the whole liquidity piece like just blows my mind because I debated this in Chicago and this guy's explaining it to me. And I'm like, you're telling me like, the sky is bright red and it's not, it's blue. I'm standing here looking at this. Like, I don't understand. You're paying people for liquidity. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I've been on a trading desk in traditional finance. It's the same thing. Like market makers. I'm like, no, market makers aren't being paid for liquidity. They're competing for liquidity and they're still buying and selling and making the transactions. So that fees getting added to the user. Yeah. But I'm, what I was like, what happens when you have no liquidity in an exchange? And he's like, well, you just pay more people. And I'm like, but there's no supply and demand for that asset. So why are you paying people to provide liquidity on something that shouldn't have liquidity? Yeah. And it's just it's, natural markets. Like, <laughs> yeah. And you get paid in the, in the native token usually as well. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'll just print a few more of those to cover that. <laughs> yeah. There was a really cool uh, research uh, paper I read about this. I can't remember who it was by, but they were basically arguing the fact that DeFi, if it continues on the trend of having the most volume in crypto, it's most likely going to turn into the traditional order for flow type business model. Because yep. it'll be the race to zero net fees, basically. And they're going to get more and more incentives to send out these orders to other people and basically turn into more of a TradFi type model. Yeah. Which I think is yep. kind of ironic. Yeah, my prediction was DeFi is going to end up turning into traditional banking, but we'll just have new players. Yeah. So it'll be like, you know, oh, well, you know, Bank of America is horrible because they're a big bank, for example. And then it'll be like, oh, well, there's this company, you know, called, I don't know, like Binance or something or I don't know, something that's not an exchange, but a, a fund. And yeah. they'll be like, oh, they're the world's greatest DeFi. They provide loans to customers. And some people are like, oh, this is amazing. It's great. And then they're going to get regulated and it will turn into centralized finance. Even like Ethereum, I keep telling people. So we're centralizing Ethereum from Ethereum 1.0 to 2.0. You're going to have to keep centralizing until you end up at a bank and you're going to have to hire all this staff to make it, you know, know your customer and, you know, BSA. So Bank Secrecy Act, which we have in the U.S. to prevent terrorist financing and all that. Once you tack all this on, it's, it's just a new bank. Like, I don't understand the difference of of doing it. Yeah, I think that's kind of the reason why the SEC is struggling to come up with regulation, because it's like, is it a software company? Is it like it's a security? What does their token stand for? Like if you're lending and like using things, the, the actual token as collateral and it makes a billion dollar portion of the market, what, how do you, how do you regulate that? Right. Yeah. Cause it's, it's like, it's like a combination of a software company and a bank. <laughs> so, yeah. I, and I, I, I think 
Part of it, too, is I don't know why. The SEC regulatory filings, that the penalties that have been levered, leveraged against firms, nobody's talking about them. And yet all these crypto firms are getting fines daily. Yeah. I mean, there's a fund in Texas. I don't remember the exact name. Anyways, it's I think they're going under securities fraud. So the SEC is going after them. The guy that runs the firm is going to be facing prison time. Yeah. And you know, everyone's pretending like, oh, no, there's there's no regulation. It's not going on. And I think I'm look up the guy's name real quick. Uh, he used to work for the SEC. And he's I've been following him now on LinkedIn because I, I feel like I'm stuck in the younger crowd where it's like everyone's so pro DeFi that I don't see anything that's against DeFi. And then I found this guy and I was like, dude, you should come on the podcast. And of course, you know, they ignore me because <laughs> I'm some random guy here. Um, but it's it's he's been posting a lot of articles and he used to work for the SEC. And I think he set up a fund on it. I can't find him off the top of my head. I'll have to find him. But he's been posting a lot of articles on like another firm got whacked with another $24 million fine for, you know, lack of due diligence. I think it was the amount of transactions were to countries that we have, uh, you know, no transacts on. So Bank Secrecy Act penalties on. Yeah. And these these funds have been doing that. And he's pointed out, too, that the majority of transactions are just international criminal transactions. And I think it's hard for younger people to understand because, you know, we're all excited. We're like, oh, I transferred, you know, funds to my friend to pay off, you know, for dinner to do something different. But when you start to realize, like, institutionalized if they're countries and criminal organizations they've got millions if not billions of dollars being transacted yeah so yeah i think that's definitely the case for DeFi. like uh there was a really good audit piece on like blockchain transactions it did find illicit activity to be like a small proportion but if you go on the DeFi side it's substantially higher because you don't have to be kyc or aml to interact right whereas on yeah. these other exchanges you do so it makes sense if you have like an open ledger and you're going through a centralized exchange that you probably wouldn't be doing anything explicit, like illicit. But if you got a DeFi exchange, that probably with billions of dollars of volume, that's probably the place to do it, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I think there was another, I can't remember the blog, but it, it did like a some blockchain analysis around uh, the kind of Ukrainian war with Russia and around how a lot of Russian oligarchs and supposed, supposedly Russian oligarchs transferred rubles on exchange for USDC and then translated that into crypto to then translate into another account through through DeFi. Doesn't surprise me. I yeah. mean, I heard today that FTX, they were, US government was using it to finance part of the Ukraine war and then making it, you know, unofficial because we can't officially send tax dollars over for it. Jeez. <laughs> so I don't know how true it is or not, but I'm thinking even governments are going to be getting in on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's crazy. I do think it has a really interesting, uh, especially the, maybe not DeFi, but like smart contracts in particular on the crypto end. I think that has a really interesting application. Like I'm seeing, I'm seeing bonds being issued in the space on smart contracts where the issuer gets, uh, the collateral of the issuer gets liquidated automatically the same way it would as in like traditional, you know, bond structures. If you hit a certain level, you get liquidated, your collateral is liquidated. But in the smart contract, it's fully automatic. So you don't have like a, mm -hmm. you don't have like the clearance or the counterparty or whatever. It just it's automatically transferred over, which I think is kind of interesting. There's some pretty cool things happening there. Same thing on the ESG front. People want to build like a centralized carbon credit trading. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> ESG. I 
I mean, so for the smart contracts, the issue I have is I've I've asked, so what happens if you don't have any funds in that account to clear it? And then people have pointed out, well, you need to make sure you have enough collateral. Well, FTX had, you know, a bunch of collateral. Yeah. But I mean, it evaporated. And then also, like, why would you need a loan if you have the collateral? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point of taking a loan is, you know, like my house. I have a house. If I had, you know, money sitting around just to buy a house, I would have just bought the house. I wouldn't have made a loan and paid interest on it over so many years. Yeah. And I think it makes sense for institutional people that are like, I've got billions of dollars. I'm going to be making trades and I can put up money for collateral. But also as a fund, I mean, why would you want to park how much collateral when you can invest it into something else that would yield, yeah, three months T-bill with, you know, four and a half percent or something would be better than having it parked and collateral for another account. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. But. (laughs) Well, ESG, let's get onto that. I heard a couple of giggles there. (laughs) Oh, ESG. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I still haven't seen any value in doing ESG. I think it's a really nice, like, I feel good about myself kind of thing. Like, I'm an investor. I'm concerned corporations and governments are evil, which, of course, there are bad corporations and governments. Um, but it's I don't understand like how you're valuing that out there. I mean, we boil it down at the end of the day. I have money. I need to allocate it to other individuals. I mean, economically, we want them to maximize return because that provides jobs. So if they make a profit and their demand for that product increases, uh, they're going to hire more people. So now your you know, friends, relatives, everyone else is going to have more labor. Um, also, I think there's there's a lot of political push on it, too, which makes it almost worthless. So ranking systems, yeah. you can pick and choose how you want to rank things. Uh, the amount of money it takes for a company to get accurate data just for themselves is just nonsensical. Yeah. Like, I don't think people realize how many staff you would have to develop. I mean, think about like McDonald's, for example. How do you estimate how much uh, carbon footprint McDonald's has? I mean, you can measure an average McDonald's store and then multiply it by the number of stores, but that's probably not going to be that accurate. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, it's like, so let's say, I don't know. I mean, the, Oil and gas industry is great with this now, I think, because everyone's complaining about it. But yet a lot of countries now are going to be using coal, which is horrible for the environment, because they got rid of all their natural gas and their oil production. Like Germany, I think, is one of these examples. They were the golden child of, you know, let's do environmental renewable energies. They they don't work. And then Europe's just been a hellhole of just dumping off all their waste onto Africa. And then, you know, now looking at Africa saying, oh, Africa's got terrible ESG. You know, they're polluting. It's like, it's all coming from Europe. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. And then China, I think the other interesting one with this is we talk a lot about China's terrible for ESG, right? I mean, at least that's what you see in a lot of the media posts. But when you look at China, I think we have to start then tracking back ESG. So China runs these manufacturing plants and they produce a lot of goods and services and create a lot of pollution. And all those goods and services are going where? I mean, they're, they're going to the United States, they're going to Europe, they're going to South America, they're going to the Middle East. Like, it, it's, in a way, I just think ESG, I haven't seen any value of, like, it'd be great to be good for the environment. Yeah. But how do you calculate that is very non-quantitative. No matter how much, like, uh, I think it's called, like, GARP, the Global Association of Risk Professionals has been pushing their ESG nonsensical, you know, risk management token little I don't know, license you can get. 
But again, like it doesn't matter how much we do, it's going to be so hard to implement it. And even if you could implement it, I think often we get onto things like, you know, fossil fuels are bad and you're like, okay, I agree. We probably shouldn't be burning as many fossil fuels, Yeah. but we don't have a lot of like good options to go down that. Like I live in Texas, so solar is great, but there's pollution from replacing solar panels all the time. And then when we need it the most for dependency is in the winter time. Yeah. And we don't have sun in the wintertime, so I'm still going to have to use natural gas or, you know, other types of fuels to really get that energy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the issue I've seen on the more on the fixed income side with ESG is that it's just an excuse for companies to sell more debt. Like, they'll just try to finance a project about saving rhinos or something in, in an African country. <laughs> that, that actually happened, by the way. <laughs> Uh, that actually that was a, that was an actual bond. <laughs> oh wow! And we bought it, of course, because it had a good ESG. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah. I I just I don't I understand like I want the environment to be good. Yeah. Like, I think everybody wants clean water, um, clean air, responsible citizens. Yeah. But I don't think doing it through investments. It's somehow going to force companies into doing it. And I think you're going to ostracize entire industries. And like the energy industry is just like, it gets so much beating, but it's like, we all need it. Yeah. Like I can't survive without, you know, heating and air conditioning and my refrigerator. And like, especially in like, you know, developed countries, we take for granted the fact that we have a cell phone and I can charge it whenever I want. Or I can go to Starbucks and charge it for free. Whereas when you look at third world countries, it's like they need to, they don't have all those, so they might be able to do it less, but also they need to develop as a country and they're going to require more resources to get from, you know, outdated technologies they're currently operating on to more efficient ones. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I don't know. I think it's an impossible puzzle to solve. And I think there's a lot of money to be made off of ESG. Yeah. Clients want it. Universe, yeah, universities want it because... You know, it's somewhere easy to place students now. There's all these new jobs in ESG ever, so they can teach something new. Uh, the certification programs like GARP, for example, they want it because now they can issue another certification you pay more money for. And then the governments want it because they're going to make more money off it by building out these massive programs and hiring a bunch of employees to run it. And investors want it because it makes them feel good. And the investing firms want it because now instead of me selling you, you know, 10 shares and you look at it like, eh, it's it's the market. You're just holding the market. Now I can relabel those 10 sh shares and say, but they got a great ESG score, guys. Buy this fund instead. And it's, I don't know, it just seems like a racket on every side. It's, I don't think there's actually real intentions to actually improve the environment with it either. No, I think I think if it's going to come from anywhere, it's probably going to be the carbon credit market as opposed to, as opposed okay. to ESG, just because of the way you can regulate that. And there, there were some really kind of, con not controversial, but crucial laws coming out of COP27. I'm not too familiar with them, but apparently if those get passed, that's meant to really help the carbon credit initiative, make it less kind of sketchy because you can buy like credits from like, I don't know, 10 years ago to offset your pollution from 20 years ago. Like it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so I, yeah, like regulation that's meant to be voted in about that. Again, I'm not too familiar with it, but we have a couple of carbon credit traders that I speak to and they're kind of excited about it. I think that's maybe a good avenue, but yeah, I, I agree on the ESG side. Yeah, that that's interesting. I haven't looked too much into the carbon credits. That'd be more of a that gives I guess you more of an incentive to calculate your carbon credits, and then trying to apply them. Yeah, like um, I think the specific laws are around how 
I think developing countries could get involved if they had like a centralized marketplace for them. So that way, if you are, I don't know, Nike opening a factory in, I don't know, Indonesia, you can buy carbon credits as Nike, but you can only buy the most recent vintages for it to offset your your carbon, as opposed to now where you can just buy decaded old vintages, and it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's like printing your own cryptocurrency. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Also, on that note, we're getting close to wrapping up, at least uh, at least for me. So I thought I'd get some closing remarks about your opinion on crypto and opinion on the economy and then maybe any tips for future quants. Okay. Um, crypto, I am not sunny on. I think it's a waste of time, to be honest. Um, I, I have a conspiracy theory I follow on it, which I thought long about. Uh, being that the cryptocurrency, so Bitcoin itself, was not created by anybody. It was probably created by a government. My guess would be the United States if I had to, you know, target down on that. Because it seems so odd that, like, you would create something that has grown into such a large, you know, globally accepted currency. And magically, we still can't pin down who it is. And, like, you can go down the rabbit hole of, like, oh, it was this one Japanese guy. And it's like, okay, so where is he? Like, it's like, where's Waldo? Like, he just doesn't exist. We can pretend he's, it's Santa Claus. I mean, we're all searching for him. We all believe in him, but I don't think it's there. Um, I think economically as well, we create cost with cryptocurrencies. So just because we are creating cost, we think that adds value. So everybody says, you know, look at the cost of mining Bitcoin. Well, I mean, I could go down the street and pay 10 people to stand in my yard and dig holes. It's labor. I'm still paying them, but it doesn't necessarily mean like any values coming out of having those holes. Yeah. Maybe they refill those holes. Um, so I think it's a lot of governments, especially the United States, has been in a lot of debt for so long. I think it'd be really nice and convenient to magically come up with a U.S. digital token, which has been talked about by the Federal Reserve, and then having both in place. But now it's a new avenue for the United States to generate more debt because you know it's not in U.S. dollars. It's in this new magical cryptocurrency, and it would easily allow them to inflate dollars and get rid of them. Um, so I'm not a fan of digital currency and what, as, as a general concept. I just don't, I don't know. It lacks a lot of security and privacy, right. which crypto is known for, you know, trying to get rid of privacy. So I'm not a fan of it. I think in the short run, it will have good implications of maybe career prospects, but I don't think in the long run, it's going to play out to be the most valuable okay. thing. So I have friends that are working in the crypto space and they've reached out to me now after FTX and they're looking to somehow jump into traditional finance. So I think it's a tale of if you're at the highs of the highs, enjoy them while you can, but you might consider them trying to get out in crypto. Yeah. Um, that's me on crypto. It's uh, not going to go well on TikTok. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> uh, for the markets, I think we're, we're just seeing a, a, a correction. So I think a lot of people are panicking and, you know, like it's going to be a market crash. And I think like I'm the odd cheerleader in the background, like let it burn. Like I want to see this thing come down hard. Uh, we've supported with too low of rates for too long. Um, again, where does the money come from? It comes from mainly the United States just generating more and more dollars. So you can look at our national debt. It just grows exponentially. Yep. There has to be a point when other countries realize like we're never going to pay that back to you. So you're not going to get anything or we'll just inflate it to the point that it's worthless. So I might pay you back your $10 billion, but it's going to be worth yeah. nothing. Um, when that comes, so oddly, Americans are blind to this. They think like we can, you know, Dimitri, it's the U.S. dollar. Like there's no other country in the world that's going to replace us. And I think maybe that's where Bitcoin might have an edge. Like maybe people would be convinced to jump to it. 
but then you have an issue with government central planning and rigging the system. But yeah, yeah, the market's going to correct. I think we'll see a crash even harder than we're at now, which is good. We want to see rates come back up. I think like the long-term mortgage rate in the United States is around 11%. Um, We're all crying and complaining now. It's at like 7%. And I think it backed down to like 6.8 or 6.9 recently. Like we're nowhere near what an average market looks like. And most of us younger individuals as well, like even myself, I I haven't seen a market where mortgage rates were 11%. So that's going to correct. I think we'll see a lot of change there. I think socially as well, the whole globe, but specifically the United States is going through a really tough cultural shift where the loud few on social media sites have been kind of driving the show and pushing political agendas. And now Twitter is probably the perfect example of like, for me, it's just like me with you know, a bullet popcorn, just checking Twitter and watching like, all the arguments on both yeah. sides of it. But I think we're going to go through a shift here where it's going to have to restabilize somewhat. And I don't know how that's going to turn out, but it's not helping the economy. Yeah. Uh, work, working participation, I heard, I think recently, like 7 million men in the US are just not working. And I know people personally that are literally not working just because they don't want to work. Like they want a job that makes over $100,000. They didn't have the skills for it. So they're going to wane it out. Um, yeah. That's not going to work. For new grads, uh, advice for new students and new grads would be focus on the core fundamental skills. So focus on statistics and mathematics, because as you see, as we talked about here as well, machine learning is built on that. So knowing logistic regression, which is that really boring, tedious statistical model, builds everything else. And those really boring linear regression models build all the machine learning. And even as you get into things that are like new papers, like you talked about doing that type of research, having those core fundamental math is really critical to doing these things and implementing them into a new language like Python when they don't exist. Um, I mean, I know statisticians who can't implement, you know, maximum likelihood. You just lack the math to get to that point. So my advice would be really focus on the core. I know it sounds boring. Um, I highly recommend everybody takes at least one machine learning course because it is a good skill to learn and have but really develop out your math stats and your programming skills because that's what companies hire on. Like I had jobs at some of the world's largest tech firms offers for there. I had them at crypto funds that were doing uh, derivative products. I've had them at, you know, FinTech, large banks. But at the end of the day, the only reason I am valuable and people want me is solely because I have a really strong background in math and stats and I've built a good career. So I have all these resources that can say like, you know, if you need help on this type of model, Dimitri's the guy to help yeah. you, but I would be, I'd be nowhere if I, if I didn't have those core kind of basic boring fundamentals. Yeah. yeah. Really good advice. All right. On that note, uh, thank you, Dimitri. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. TikTok will, Thanks for having me. I'm sure TikTok would love to, to hear about all this stuff. So I'll, I'll clip it up and have it posted pretty soon. Uh, yeah. Thanks for everything.